Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. We're excited to welcome to the show, coach, sports consultant, and the host of the Coaching Culture Podcast, JP Nurbin. JP, thanks for joining us. Guys, it's great to be here, man. So you released a new book called The Culture System, which I've loved and people can't see it, but I've marked it up all over. I've got all sorts of notes and been using um, a ton. I mean, really applicable. Like I can take, okay, I can use this with my team tomorrow. So it's a great book. Congrats. Um, I hope people go and get it and read it. Um, but I was curious, what was your goal with the book? Why'd you write it? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of five years in the making to put together that book. Um, it's kind of the best, most effective strategies that I've seen coaches use and leaders use in organizations that I kind of came across and said, man, these are like not only the best strategies, they're almost used and shared by anyone that has a great team culture. And I had experience helping other coaches, the collegiate professional and high school levels um, across the world implement. And, you know, obviously you hear something the Chicago Cubs do and it's like, oh, that's great. You know, like the Cubs can do that, but how can a, you know, high school basketball team or how can a, you know, club volleyball team implement that strategy? And, um, you know, we've spent five years saying, okay, there's value in these things. How do we apply them? And then what I've also learned and experienced in my own experience as a coach is that, you know, we get great ideas for the season. Um, and when we set out with good intentions, but things go by the wayside and, um, you know, instead of just kind of going in with like a goal or plan for this year, what we need is really a system where these strategies are connected and so that we can consistently do them over time and we can execute on those things. And that was something I really enjoyed what you mentioned about the book. Um, you know, I know people love the talent code and it's a great book be like, Oh, Google and Popovich. Like that's just such a different world where you, you have some examples from professional teams, but all these examples from like a D3 coach or a high school team, they're like, Oh, okay. I can relate to that. Like that, that makes, you know, more sense at my level. So I think that's why it's really valuable. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's definitely resonating with coaches because, um, there's proof, there's evidence this works, you know, I mean, we're seeing it and, and, you know, with all the coaches I've gotten to work with in the last five years, I mean, there was a lot of stories that got left out of there, you know, like we could just continue going down the line of how non-negotiables have been important or the way that we enforce um, consequences or player improvement plans, you know, like uh, these skills, these tools, these methods, I mean, they're really, really working effectively at developing culture. So in part one of the book, you talk about striving to be a mentor, not a coach. 
Can you explain the difference and why a mentor is more impactful? Yeah, just for the listeners, there's there's four parts of the book. Parts two through four are really the system around establishing, supporting, and enforcing the culture. Uh, but part one focuses on the leader who will drive the system. And uh, I think one of the big things I'm encouraging coaches is to see their role differently than the how many of us see our role when we step into coaching, right? We see ourselves as the tactician, the, the teacher of skills, you know, facilitate practice, you know, make tactical decisions in a game and then sprinkle some motivation on it. And then off we go. And it's, I think our role should be different. At least that's what I aspire to. And many of the coaches I work with. And so we're looking at not just this coach, but this mentor who's very relational and a mentor that meets people where they're at. Um, so if you bring somebody into your program, you're saying, okay, I, now I have a responsibility to serve you and to help you, um, wherever you are, you know, wherever you are, when it comes to your work ethic, your attitude, I've brought you into my program. Now I have a responsibility to you. And the best way to approach that and help that individual to grow and to change is to come alongside them and, you know, be that mentor, you know, be very relational. Uh, it starts with the relationships and, and seeing them as a human being and caring about their human problems, not just their athlete problems. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, I guess that's a little bit of a brief overview of that. Yeah. So it seems like a coach would be someone who's hyper-focused on maybe, you know, getting them to shoot a better jump shot or improve their ability to pass the ball and volleyball where a mentor, I think it's considering that for sure but also really considering um, where they are in their life and how they can help bring the best out of them. Yeah. The, the coach is technical, tactical often. And mm. okay. Then a little bit of culture or behaviors, but it's more from a standpoint of so that we can be effective and win games. Right. right. So the, the coach is like, well, we got to have a strong culture because otherwise they're not bought in. Right. Like, or they don't work hard, but the mentor walks in and sees people and, um, you know, sees what they're struggling with and then tries to help them through those things. That's great. That's a great delineation and a nice way to, and people can think about those different roles and decide how they want to approach their teams, um, as a mentor or a coach. So another thing you talk about in the book is, um, goals and visions and how there's a difference between the two. Can you, can you take us through the differences between the two? Yeah. And I, I think goals have gotten a little bit of a bad rep lately where like people are like, oh, you know, it's all about the process. And I, I don't think goals are necessarily a bad thing. Goals are, we want to win the, the game goals are, we want to win our conference goals are, we want to win this tournament. Those are all good. Um, but at the end of the day, we've got to be there for something more, you know, why are we here? What are we trying to create uh, when it comes to, this, this team experience. So we try to say, all right, you've got a goal, but then, you know, as a coach, I might not have the mission to impact lives and, but that I have a vision for my team. Yeah. We can be winning championships every year, but I want this to be the best part of their day. Or I want this to be a place where everyone wants to come and nobody wants to leave. You know what I'm saying? So it's, 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 it's more about the experience. It's about the memories they'll make. It's about the relationships they'll be build. It's about who they'll become. 
it, it's this, yeah, it's, it's, it's far greater and grander um, than, than the goal, I think in many ways. And for coaches listening, how do you suggest they create a vision statement and make it, I guess, specific to their program and themselves? I give three questions in the book to reflect on. And the first is, what do you want your team to remember? The second would be, um, who do you want them to become? And I'm blanking on the third one right now, but there's a couple of there's three mm. questions in the book there, but we're really focusing on the memories uh, and, and the experience and and who they're becoming through, through that process. I got the book here. I'm going to try to find it. Billy's going to ask the next question. <laughs> you, you readers, you got to, or listeners, you got to go get the oh, book. Oh, they got to buy the book. The, there yeah. you go. Yeah, buy it's the a book to get the it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> we're not telling them. Let's forget it. I'm putting the book away. <laughs> um, can you share an example of a coach that has a vision statement and I guess how they implement it? Yeah, I'm actually, you know, working with a college coach now at the moment, and they come came up with the, the the vision statement of which I just shared there, which is a place where everybody wants to come and nobody wants to leave, and, and that's currently not the experience. What wasn't the experience when that that college coach took over their program? It was a place where people were transferring out rapidly every year, and they had one of the highest uh, transfer rates uh, in division two athletics in their, in their conference. Right. So, um, so having that is, is great, right. You have this vision statement and then it's coming down and it starts with sharing that vision. Like how, listen, like, like for me, it's like, you know, sharing your own experiences of bad cultures and good cultures and what we hope for our players. And then asking your players, like, what would that look like for you? beginning year, like, all right, you know, what would a place that everybody, you know, just can't wait to be here and nobody wants to leave. Like, what will that look, what would be a great experience for you here at this program? And it's getting them to share some of those thoughts and ideas as well as a goal that then they can create some behavioral standards in the program that will match up with that. And once you've created those behavioral standards in the team, then it's coming in and supporting and enforcing those standards throughout the season. Like, so this whole, the vision is the start point is part one, but then, you know, everything else just kind of carries and the system works to support that vision. You mentioned before the idea of maybe people have gone too far and we talked about a coach about this recently, like too far. It's all about the process. It's all about the process. What, what's the harm of like that being the, the only focus and forgetting about kind of results and, and the, the goal? The problem with that is that you would alienate some players. Some people need a goal, you know, and one of the coaches that I talk about in the book is Dave Brandt and he coached at Messiah. Then he went on to coach at Navy, um, uh, pro soccer team in in, uh, I think Pittsburgh. And then he was over at Hope College in Michigan. Now he's at Bucknell. Like he's built incredible cultures everywhere he's gone, but you know, is is really special when he was at Messiah. He, I think he wants, you know, like seven championships in like 10 years. Um, and he's like very clear. I, we're going to be perennial national champions when he took over. Like that is our goal here where we have the potential for that. And um, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong. That's, that's, that can be a motivator that can be a bit of a, of a part of your North star. It can be, you know, his vision for his team was to be the best team to play college soccer for in the country. Right. So part of that vision is that they win a lot, you know, like, so it's, that's okay. You know, like, but it can't be the only thing, you know, 
It has to be beyond just the winning. So the, the big thing is I've seen coaches say, we're not going to set a goal of a state championship, but like, it's like we were state championship runners up last year. Like it's going to be on our mind. Let's just put it out there and let's name it, you know? And then how can you make sure that your mission statement or goals or visions aren't just this like wallpaper or something you address at the beginning of the season? I guess, how do you fall through? How do you measure it? Make sure it's having an effect on the team. Yeah, that's a great question because there's this story that I often tell when I'm working with athletic departments or clubs that come up with mission statements or vision statements. Um, and the thing that I love to do is I'll, I'll, I'll share on a screen a mission statement and core values of this, this company. And it's, I won't go into it, but essentially I have them read it and guess which company this beautiful mission statement and vision and core values are. And it's, it's Enron is the story, right? Like Enron, you know, created this 84 page manual on how they were going to develop a great culture of respect and integrity. And then like years later, they had like a couple of years later, they had the big Enron scandal. Um, but then I sh- love to share a story from uh, Johnson and Johnson who had this credo that they wrote back in the forties and they had this, you know, this thing was 311 words and it set out their core values and who was most important. And it was said that the customer was most important and the shareholder was last. And, you know, some people say, well, that's just a credo, but they would revisit it every year, especially back in like, I think the seventies or eighties. And then a disaster struck Johnson and Johnson. They had this, you know, cyanide scandal where, Tylenol was being laced and people were dying. Well, they used that mission statement in that moment of crisis to make decisions. Every decision was made based upon their mission statement and their core values. And they didn't care about the shareholders in that moment. Their stock plummeted, but they took off all the Tylenol in the country. When people said, oh, you could just take it off in that area, in the Midwest area where you know the, the incident had happened. So you see you know, drastically one, it's on a, wall, it's in the manual, but they don't make their decisions off of that. And so once you create your core values, your mission statement, your vision, everything flows with, from that within the culture system. Everything comes back to how do we create that environment within our standards? How, and then also how do we make decisions? You know, when, when an issue comes up with a player, do we cut this player? Do we keep this player? You know, it's just, it's all built off of that uh, and you keep coming back to that. So you're supporting that. Um, and then I would also say, you got to talk about it constantly. You got to talk about it so much that your players make fun of you. And once they're making fun of you, then you've talked about it enough. And then you can keep talking about it, right? And you can laugh it off, but like, it's just, you just have to never shut up around these things, these principles and these values. Would you say they become the most important in like the moment with Johnson and Johnson, or I think of like a team that's gone through some like serious adversity is, is that, I guess when they're most valuable, or I mean, it sounds like you want to use them every day, but is that like when you lean on them, like in times of adversity? Absolutely. Um, really cool story with a guy that I recently interviewed, which was guys named Jason Caldwell. It's this, this story's not in the book. So it's a little bonus material. Hey, for hey, people, all right. But- but um, it's an amazing documentary that I think every team should should watch, which is called Chasing. Um, and I love promoting Jason's work because he's an incredible human being. But uh, Jason captained or led um, a four-man boat team across the Atlantic twice. And he, the second time, he set the world record. And then he also did 
um, across the Pacific. There's this moment he told he, he told me there. It was just actually a couple of weeks ago, and I love the story where they crafted a mission statement with these four people, and what it was made up of their whys. So everyone shared why they wanted to row across the Atlantic and set the world record, and they shared their whys, and they had to craft those into a, a unified why. And it took them a few weeks, but then they signed it. They put it on their boat, and then why you know, their mission was: we're going to row as fast as we can, as hard as we can, for as long as we can to get across the ocean. Well, they hit this dead patch in, in like this really bad weather day and, and they cannot, they're like going 0.5 knots. They cannot move the boat. They're struggling big time. And two of the guys in the boat say, Hey, we need to stop anchor all the sleep, rest our energy, and then we can take off and go. And another guy in the boat's like, no, we need to keep pushing on. So then it comes down to Jason. I know Jason is, it would be two and two. He would be the deciding vote though, because he's kind of like the captain of the ship um, or the boat. And he knows though, if he just forces the decision and says, well, I think this, so this is what we're going to do because I'm the deciding vote. The other two guys really aren't bought in and he needs guys that are bought in on the row, right? On those oars. So he just looks and he points to the mission. He says, the decision's already made. We're going to row as fast as we can, as hard as we can for as long as we can. So that means we're not stopping. And they go on to break the world, you know, the world record and, and win the race, right? It's just a cruel one of like that moment, you know, of coming back to that. And so, you know, if you, if for this is a great story about like a high school soccer coach I was working with, you know, you know, years ago, his mission was something around line of transforming the lives of their players. Um, you know, it's, it's something deeply relational. I forget his mission statement, but he had this whole mission and vision and he had to make a decision which was he was struggling to get coaches and he had a freshman program, a JV program and a varsity program. And the freshman program just kind of just was stealing his energy. It was stealing their coach's energy. They didn't have the capacity to do that. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if we should cut it. I think we'll get some flack, you know, from parents and from administration. I said, we'll just come back to your mission. You right. Are you better able to serve your mission with two teams and you can serve those individuals better or three teams? He's like, Two teams, absolutely, right? Like, amazing, right? Makes the decision, cuts it, has a bigger impact. Same thing again happens this year, except it's like, do I keep, you know, a big roster or a smaller roster? And I said, well, come back to your mission. Are you going to be able, in your vision, like, are you going to be able to achieve that with a smaller roster? Absolutely. Okay, there you go. You know, like, it's a hard decision to cut some guys there because you want to give everybody a chance and everybody an experience. But, but the way he just uses that as a, a decision-making tool uh, for him. Those are great examples. It's really helpful to hear the story. Just before I forget, the documentary is called Chasing. Is that is that the name of it? Yeah, I think you and, can get it on Amazon Prime or Apple Amazon TV. Prime. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I know in the the book, you you talk, you talk give examples about how people can create this mission statement or these vision statements. I'm curious how, how often, so it seems like so important, so vital to your program. How often do you recommend, you know, tweaking it, revisiting it, making sure it's the the right mission? It seems like it's so important that it, that is the right mission statement for you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, I'd put it above my desk, I'd put it in my journal, and you know, I would be having a meeting at the beginning of every year to share that with the team and saying, hey, if I want to be, you know, if I'm coaching here in Ireland, you know, I'm coaching about, you know, like I was coaching a couple of years ago, a pro basketball team during COVID. You know, I wanted this to be the, you know, the best damn team in the country. It's like, well, 
what does that look like for you guys? You know, what does that look like for us this season? And, um, you know, it's just kind of coming back and, and having them to, to define that each year. So it does become something that's not just you've done once and you've you stored it away, right? You, you, you do need to create artifacts. You do need to plaster it on walls. You do need to put it on t-shirts. Um, but then you need to start telling stories around it as well too. They come back to it. Like I was working with a hockey academy last week and they just hired a you know new director or general manager. And he had come from a co- the college, the college ranks. And he had this, you know, vision mission of win all day, every day. Right. And they, all the kids show up to the Academy for the year where they, you know, they live and born and just live and breathe hockey all year. Win all day, every day that they get, they all get shirts. It's on the locker room walls of all, all four teams, but it's not just there. It's, already stories are being told around it in our, in our, our retreat that I was running. Right. I know I, I wasn't telling the stories. I mean, I was having the coaches share stories of what that means to them and where that comes from. And, you know, powerful stories where under, people are starting to understand the why behind that phrase. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good way to, you know, keep, you know, kind of kickstart that. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, you, you have a, a really personal story you share in the book, uh, it was on page 56 where, where there was a parent that you respected came up and had a really hard conversation with you. And, you know, he was saying you're, you're preaching, you have this mission of things like hard work, respect, positive attitude. But uh, when I see your players on the court, they're not actually living it. And when I watch you on the bench, you're not, you're not actually um, living these values. So I'm curious if you could share like how this changed your coaching moving forward after this conversation. Absolutely. It was a very painful, painful moment. Very painful. Um, it to hear that type of feedback because I actually had a, a, a relationship with this parent. I respected this parent. He's the type of parent that would show up and you, you know, you interact, you talk about life, you know, and about your kids, about family. And, and I, I definitely respect the way he was raising his kids. So that helped me his message get through to me, but it was painful for me because I, I knew he was right. And I, I, I had been lying to myself and I had been blaming the last few years, the kids, ah, kids these days, the entitlement of this culture, or, you know, you know the football program does this, that, you know, li- bleeds into my program or, you know, like it just, I came up with all these reasons or why I didn't have a great culture and very few of them were my fault, you know, and it wasn't mean, it didn't mean that I wasn't trying to build a great culture. I was doing things to try to build a great culture. I was taking actions to, to you know, and, and implementing different tools and stuff. We had a character curriculum that we would put our kids through every Sunday. I was doing things to build a culture, but I wasn't doing the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing when it comes to developing character and leadership and a great culture is that, that I'm, you have to be working on yourself so that you're leading and living in alignment with those values. You don't have to be perfect. I didn't need to be perfect. I just needed to be taking responsibility for myself and working on those things. And when I fell short, when I failed to, you know, when I lost control, blew up on my team, um, when I made those type of mistakes that were common for me as a coach, those were my struggles, oftentimes were my temper. Um, when I did that, 
just stepping back and, and apologizing to my team. And, and, and st- you know, even if the player did something that maybe warranted discipline, but I didn't discipline, in a, you know, in, a, in alignment with my values. So yeah, that, that's, that, that, that was a huge turning point for me, for sure. That was great that you share these personal stories. I wrote down the the line from the book that kind of encapsulates what you were just sharing. It's a really good line that all coaches should think of. It said, after all, while people aren't very good at listening to leaders, they're quick to act like them. I think it's, you really nailed yeah. it in a, one concise, clear sentence in that. I'm curious, um, this is not completely off topic, but taking us away from the book a little bit. As I've observed, especially basketball, and I know you're in the basketball world, and you think of someone like like Coach Wooden or Phil Jackson sitting, like never rarely standing and just, you know, they're, not that they're not intense, but they're sitting on the bench. And if I watch a college game today, the coaches look like they just played a full game. Like they're on the court, they're running around. Um, yeah, I'm curious, like, why why has the basketball world gone that way? And what's the, maybe the upsides or the downsides of coaches acting like that? Well, do you see that in the volleyball world as well? Uh, not to that extreme. Um, I think, uh, no, yeah. I mean, coaches are, I, I think, closer to the wooden than the, I'm not going to name a name in college basketball, but um, maybe getting a little bit more involved, a little more up and down, like, yeah, a little more active. I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with being up, staying up and, 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 you know, active and calling out to your teammates and yelling to them. I think that sometimes that can be necessary. Um, I think the sign of great coaching is where you don't need to do that because you've prepared them, you've empowered them to be leaders and they are very intrinsically motivated. Mm-hmm. When I was coaching two and a half years ago, just even here, I just did a short stint during COVID and with the pro team and then they got shut down. So we had like three month season. But I remember getting feedback early on from my players after the first kind of like exhibition game. Like they're like, we need you to be louder. We need you to be more more up and engaged. And I said, that's fine. I'll do that because I'm meeting them where they're at mm-hmm. with the hope that these people would start to realize that they possess the leadership. So my whole thing was, all right, I'm going to turn up my energy on the sideline from maybe a three to a seven with the hopes that I can start to dial that down as the season goes on. But to answer your question, why do coaches do that? Um, because they haven't coached effectively because they are con- constantly, the team constantly re- relies on them to be the motivator, the drive. They're using the carrot or they're using the stick. You know, they can be really loud with both of them. I don't want to use both either of those eventually. I want it all to come from within is, is the ideal team that you're trying to create. I also think in sports like basketball and American football and in the States, there is a very visual element, you know, especially when you're on TV and there is the perception of, of what great coaching looks like. And Mm -hmm. I think these coaches buy into that lie Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and thus go out there. I think that, I think that could feed into it a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even the way in basketball, the way the camera is set up a lot, like we're in football, you don't see the coach unless they pan over. Or in basketball, mm-hmm. like you're just con- they're constantly in the background. Billy, I'm curious, what about at the the juniors level at high school volleyball um, and club volleyball? Do you see what do you see from coaches? Are they more active, more involved, less? Has that changed at all? 
You see both. I mean, I think especially with younger coaches, maybe it's an energy thing or maybe it's a confidence thing, but a lot of them are, are celebrating just as loud, um, you know, with every point scored and doing backflips on the sidelines. Um, and yeah, sometimes like JP said, the team feeds off that and, and wants that. And they, you know, feel like you're invested and passionate. And um, usually the older coaches are a little more withdrawn and just kind of studying from a distance. Hopefully not withdrawn, but <laughs> hopefully focused, but not. <laughs> but and yeah, and I don't want to come off saying like there's a right way, wrong way. I think it's cool if people care. Um, but I think like JP said, I think if your team is prepared, um, they're going to be able to have the intrinsic motivation. They're going to be able to um, solve problems on their own without you solving them. So um, mm-hmm. I'd love to see coaches go more that direction, but what do I know? I think it's, but I, yeah, I think it's cool. What JP was saying about meeting the players halfway or where they're at, because sometimes like what you would do um, and your philosophy as a coach might, you know, not go exactly align with what the players think they want <laughs> or what they want. Um, and so, yeah, maybe you don't have to like totally go against the, what you think you should be doing, but at least meeting them part way and show that you're you know, making an effort or hearing them. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I was never going to swear and cuss them out. Like that wasn't in, in, like, if you need me to really get on you and really get in you, like, that's just not going to happen. I remember hearing like Tony Dungy used to say a great thing when he was at Tampa Bay, uh, one of his earliest speeches to the team at the, for the, for the Buccaneers was uh, he just kind of in, the, in a normal Tony Dungy voice was just like, so uh, this is about as loud as I'll ever get. And if that's a problem for you, um, then this may not be the place to play for you play. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is just, this is who I am. Typically when I get madder, I'm going to speak softer <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's, that's Dungy. Right. So it's, but you know, so he kind of communicated to that, but does it, he still showed up with passion. He still showed up with energy and his players knew that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's great to be, I think it's good to be flexible, but also to have your core convictions. Like I think we, we have a, a friend, a, a sports psychologist is like, what are you willing to get fired over? Like what, what is like true to your, like who you are and you're, you're not going to be flexible on. Uh, I think it's important to, to know where you will compromise and where you won't.